I invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word or in your bulletin to our text this morning, which is found in Genesis chapter 41. Genesis chapter 41, beginning in verse 1. We're continuing our study this morning of the life of Joseph. And if you're familiar with the story of, or if you've been worshiping with us for the last few weeks, um, it's safe to say that Joseph's life up to this point since we were introduced to him has been one one downward spiral. It has trended downward ever since we met him. He's gone from the frying pan to the fire. Every time we think that his life has, has hit the bottom, the bottom just drops out one more time. He was sold by his brothers into slavery, downward. And then we think that the story is going to trend back up when he begins to be successful in Potiphar's house. Uh, but then he's falsely accused of seducing Potiphar's wife, and he's thrown into prison, downwards again. And then after a few years, we think that the break has finally come and that he's going to get out, and it's going to trend back up when he successfully uh, interprets the cupbearer's dream. But then the cupbearer forgets, and he continues to rot away in an Egyptian prison, downward. Joseph's life to this point, it really has been a nightmare. It really has been one spiral downwards. But this morning, something's going to change. This morning, finally, something is going to change. We've come to the, the hinge in the storyline. We've come to the turning point that we've been waiting for. This is the moment that Joseph begins to wake up from his nightmare. And it's so interesting that the turning point, the, the, the point in the storyline at which Joseph's story begins to trend upward from trending downward, the moment he begins to wake up from his nightmare is when God sends Pharaoh a nightmare of his own. And we see it this morning in both nightmares, in Pharaoh's nightmare that lasted one night and in Joseph's nightmare that lasted most of his life, that God is at work, that God is at work. We see God at work bringing about his purposes to be good to his people and to bring about salvation to his people. And brothers and sisters, that's good news. That's good news, isn't it? That God works through nightmares. It's good news because you might be in a nightmare of your own this morning, or you might be watching someone that you love endure their own nightmare, or you might be recovering and healing from a nightmare in your past, or you might be incredibly anxious and afraid of a nightmare that you see coming in your future. And you need to know that God doesn't just wait for his people on the other side of their nightmares, but that he walks with them through his people's nightmares, and he uses every drop and every second of them for their good and for his glory. Let's see how that's true this morning. Genesis chapter 41, this is God's word. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile, and Behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke, and he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh woke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all of his magicians in Egypt and all of its wise men. 
Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. But I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, behold, in my dream, I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I had never seen before in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the seven plump cows. But when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. And then I awoke. I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and ugly as at the beginning. Oh, wait, sorry. Um, then I woke. And I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears, withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind, sprouted after them, and the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Then, Pharaoh, I mean, then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and, let him, and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt." so that the land may not perish through the famine. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all of his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to, to Joseph, Since God has shown you all of this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command, only as regards your throne." Will I be greater than you? Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please pray with me. 
Oh, Father, we find ourselves this morning, right now, in the very same situation as Pharaoh found himself. You speak to us in your word, and yet, O oh Lord, unless you come by your spirit and give us ears to hear and eyes to see, then we cannot hear and understand what you say to us. And so would you please, O oh God, come and show yourself to us. Would you come, O oh God, we pray, and we pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. So again, if we had to plot Joseph's life on a graph up to this point, his life has trended downwards. It's been a long, painful, slow downward spiral. Just when we think it can't get worse, indeed, it, get, it gets worse. But finally, right here, out of the blue, on a morning that, that Pharaoh wakes up from a nightmare, things begin to change. The storyline begins to shift. This is the hinge. This is the pivot that we've been waiting for and that Joseph's been waiting for. This is the, this is the trend upwards that Joseph has been waiting for, waking up from his nightmare. And what I want to do this morning, the way I want to approach this passage is by zooming in on this hinge, on this pivot. I want to zoom in on this point of the graph in Joseph's life where it goes from trending downwards to trending upwards. And I want to ask three questions. When did it happen? How did it happen? And why did it happen? When, how, and why? And I think that as we answer those questions of this passage, we'll see what this has to do with you, how Joseph waking up from his nightmare has everything to do with you this morning. So first of all, when? When does the storyline shift? When does Joseph begin to wake up from his nightmare? Well, the first four words of the chapter tell us, and they are a painful four words, aren't they? After two whole years. After two whole years. Remember, that's two years after Joseph had interpreted the chief cupbearer's dream. Pharaoh's cupbearer had been thrown into prison, you remember, along with the chief baker. They both had dreams. Joseph interprets them correctly. And Joseph's last word to the cupbearer as he's going out of prison back to the palace is, remember me. Don't forget me. You're my ticket out of here. Go put a bug in Pharaoh's ear. You've got to tell him that I'm down here unjustly, remember me. But, um, but the cupbearer forgets. And you have to think that as, as the cupbearer was, was walking up those steps out of the prison that day, that Joseph probably went back to his cell, shaved, said goodbye to his cellmates, packed up his bags and said, this is it. This has got to be my break. Surely this is how God is going to deliver me. This has got to be the way that God is going to bring about the restoration and the exaltation that I dreamed about. This has got to be it. He's at work in this. I know it. And that's what makes these four words so crushing. After two whole years. Two whole years of waiting and hoping that you know turned into two whole years of doubting and disappointment. Two years of Joseph thinking, am I crazy? <laughs> Have I literally gone crazy in here? <laughs> Did I just make all this up? What is God doing? Do you know what that's like? Do you know what it's like to wait and to keep waiting? 
Do you know what it's like to wait for something that you know that God would want you to have because it's good? Maybe it's something that God's even promised you in his word. A child or um, a spouse. The mending of a broken relationship. The end of some kind of suffering. The end of physical suffering or emotional suffering. The end of, of your own nightmare. For the, for the dark clouds of depression to break. For God to answer this one prayer that you've been praying for so long. Do you know what it's like for God to just keep you waiting? To keep you waiting right there on that razor's edge between belief and unbelief with no answers. Do you know what that's like? I heard a quote recently. I'm not sure who to attribute it to. I think it has several, maybe several sources, but it goes like this. It's about patience. Patience with others is love. Patience with ourselves is hope. And patience with God is faith. Patience with God is faith. That's, that's interesting, isn't it? The Bible has so much to say about God's patience with us, as we've sung about this morning and as we've read about. It's all over the Bible that God is, God is patient, long-suffering, and kind. He's patience with us. But did you know that the Bible also has so much to say about our patience with God, which is faith? Waiting on the Lord waiting for him to bring about the purposes that he's promised that we don't see yet, waiting for answers that we know are going to come that we don't have yet, waiting on the Lord, patience with God. It's all over the Bible. It's especially all over the Psalms. I mean, Psalm 27, wait for the Lord. Psalm 33, our soul waits on the Lord. He is our help and our strength. Psalm 37, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Psalm 62, for God alone, my soul waits in silence. On and on and on, waiting for God, holding on to his promises, <laughs> living the life of faith by being patient with God. What does God want to teach us while we wait? Well, I think he, God teaches Joseph here, and he teaches us that God is never not at work. There's never a moment ever that God's not doing something. God is always doing 10,000 things at one time. He might, he might give us access to two or three of those things that he's doing. Sometimes he shuts the door and doesn't let us see anything that he's doing. But he's always doing something. God is never not at work. But it's in those times when we don't have the answers. It's in those times that we can't see what he's doing that he keeps us waiting, saying, trust me. He keeps us waiting, brothers and sisters, because God is never interested in bringing you to a place where you don't need him. He's never interested in bringing you to the place where you don't need him anymore. One of my favorite commentators, um, Ralph Davis, he says this. This is just vintage Yahweh. It's just what he's like. God has this way of keeping his people waiting, of drawing them to himself as they wait. How are you waiting this morning? 
So after two whole years, that's, that's, when, that's when the storyline shifts. That's when, um, that's when Joseph begins to wake up from his nightmare. But secondly, let's think about how. How does the storyline begin to shift? How does Joseph's nightmare end here? Well, we see that God begins to wake Joseph up from his nightmare by, making, by giving Pharaoh a nightmare of his own. And these really are nightmares. Um, the text calls them dreams, but they are incredibly weird dreams, aren't they? Think about it. You might be used to this story, but let it hit you in a, in a new and fresh way. Have you ever seen a, a, a starving monster mutant cow? Um, have you ever seen a starving mutant monster cow eat alive something else that's living? I mean, watching anything eat something alive is, will give you nightmares itself, right? Don't Google it. Um, but Pharaoh sees these monster mutant thin kind of cows come up and literally eat alive these other, these other cows. It's, it's really a nightmare. And then he sees the same things with these stalks of grain. Um, these are definitely nightmares. But brothers and sisters, I want you to see that there's something, there's a deeper reason that Pharaoh wakes up in a cold sweat from these dreams. It wasn't just that these dreams scared him. They would have done that, but there's something else going on. Verse 8 tells us that in the morning his spirit was troubled. His spirit was troubled. Um, here's the real reason that this was a nightmare to Pharaoh. Because he knew that there was a quality about these dreams that convinced him that God was communicating with him. But he had no idea what God was communicating. He knew that God was speaking to him in these dreams, but he had no idea what he was saying. Um, there was, he, he was on the outside looking in. He knew that God was communicating, but he had no idea what God was saying. Have you ever tried to communicate with someone who doesn't know a word of the language that you speak in? Um, try to communicate with someone like that with no hand gestures and without speaking slowly and loudly to try to get them to, I mean, that doesn't work either. Um, there's a real language barrier there, isn't it? If you have to try to speak to someone who doesn't understand a word of what you're saying, you realize that there really is a barrier that's about, it's, it's about as high as a 100-foot steel wall that separates you from them. You can't communicate. You can't understand each other. And y'all, this is, this is the reason this is such a nightmare to Pharaoh. Because he's the one in Egypt who's supposed to be able to cross that barrier. Pharaoh is supposed to have access to the divine. He's supposed to, have, to, to be in with the gods. He's supposed to be one of them. He's supposed to have access to them. But here he is, and he knows that the one true and living God is communicating with him, speaking to him, and he's powerless. He's on the outside. And he also knows that it's something incredibly important. I mean, these, the cows and the stalks of grain, those are the two staple agricultural realities in Egypt. He knows that God is speaking to him something incredibly important about the fate of his nation, and he needs to know, and he can't. And there's nothing that he can do to get in. He goes to all the best and the brightest in Egypt, and they can't help him either. He's cut off. He's on the outside looking in. That's Pharaoh's nightmare. 
But y'all, I want to invite you to see that as your nightmare too. I want to invite you to see that as the nightmare that you and I and every other person born into this world after Genesis 3 is born into. The nightmare of being born made for relationship with God but cut off. The nightmare of God speaking to us in his world and in his word, but us not being able to get it. And we can't think our way back in, and we can't reason our way back in, and we can't perform our way back in, and we can't behave our way back in. Paul describes this nightmare in Romans 1. He says that although although God has plainly revealed the truth to us, what do we do? We suppress it in unrighteousness. And even though we've clearly perceived his power and his divine nature in the world, even though Paul says we know God, (laughs) our hearts are darkened and our thinking is futile. We're on the outside looking in, cut off. C.S. Lewis, in his essay, The Weight of Glory, he says that we have this, this lifelong nostalgia a longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door from which we've always seen on the outside. That's the nightmare that we're born into as sinners on this side of the Garden of Eden. And it's the nightmare that Pharaoh is experiencing acutely right now on the outside with no way to get in. And that's how the storyline begins to shift here. This is the point at which Joseph's nightmare begins to shift because the light bulb goes off in the cupbearer's head. He remembers. He remembers this apparently very forgettable uh, Hebrew slave that was down there in the dungeons with him who had interpreted one of his dreams. He remembered this man that he had met two years ago who seemed to be able to speak both the language of God and the language of man. Someone who had crossed that barrier. And so they call him. They call Joseph. He comes in. He's presented before Pharaoh. And y'all, I love this part. This is the moment that Joseph's been waiting for. This is the moment that he's been waiting for all of his life. He's He's before the king of the world. This is surely the moment that God is going to end his nightmare and and make his dream, the dream that God gave him, become a reality. Pharaoh says to him, listen, Joseph, I've heard about you. I've heard that you're someone special. I've heard that you can do something that no one else can do. I've heard you've got a gift. I've heard that you're a somebody. Is that true? And I love this part. Joseph's answer to Pharaoh is so amazing. He says, no, that's not true. I'm not a somebody. I'm actually not that important. It's all in God. It's not in me. It's not that I'm special or unique or or a somebody. I'm a nobody that God will be good to you through. I'm a channel that God will show you grace through. He literally says, it's not in me. (laughs) It's in God. God will show you. That's incredible, isn't it? 
because that's the moment at which he knew that Pharaoh could have just said, well, just go back to prison. I'm looking for a somebody. I'm Pharaoh. I need somebody important here. But he doesn't. He's willing to risk true deep humility because he finally understands who he is. After years of suffering, Joseph finally understands who he is. He's, his suffering has produced endurance, and that endurance has produced character. And it's a character that's humble and confident and rooted in God, not rooted in himself. Suffering has a way of doing that, doesn't it? So Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dream. He stands in the gap. He stands over the barrier. He speaks the language of God to Pharaoh, and he lets Pharaoh in, into God's plan. The door opens to Pharaoh from the inside because there's someone who can interpret it, who can speak both languages. That's, that's how the storyline shifts here. That's how God begins to bring Joseph out of his nightmare, by allowing him to serve as an interpreter, as a go-between, as someone who reveals God to someone who otherwise would have no access to God. So we've seen when it happens, when this shift in the storyline happens. We've seen how it happens. And finally, we need to ask why. Why does the shift happen? And, and then what does this have to do with you and me? Um, well, think about it. The answer to this why question, why does God begin to wake up Joseph from his nightmare in this way? The answer, it, it's an answer that the 17-year-old, cocky and arrogant, naive Joseph never would have guessed. God has brought Joseph on a journey, and if you had gone back to that 17-year-old, pre-suffering, pre-nightmare Joseph and asked him, why is God going to exalt you? God's given you the, he, he's telegraphed his plan for you. Why? Why is God going to make your brothers and father and mother bow down to you? Why is God going to lift you up and exalt you? The pre-suffering, pre-nightmare Joseph would have said, duh, like, because I'm awesome. Because I'm Joseph. I'm the youngest son. My dad loves me more than those other buffoon brothers of mine. Obviously, he's going to exalt me. I mean, I'm, I'm Joseph. I'm the favored child. I'm better than they are. That was the pre-nightmare, pre-suffering Joseph. But here we see the post-nightmare, post-suffering Joseph has a much different perspective. Um, he, he can see that God is at work on a far grander, far larger scale than he ever imagined. Why does the storyline shift here? Why does God exalt Joseph? For other people. To save others. Look at the end of verse 36. So that the land may not perish through the famine. God is going to save millions of people through Joseph. God saves Joseph so that he can in turn be a blessing to the nation, so that he can bring about life and health and blessing to the whole world. We see now that God has been at work at the microscopic level of Joseph's own life and suffering because he's also at work at the macrocosmic level of the whole world 
and bringing life and blessing and peace to those who otherwise would not have it. God begins to exalt Joseph here because, listen, he's giving us a glimpse. He's giving us a first installment of the promise that he made to Abraham so long ago that in Abraham's offspring, he would bless the whole world. So God is at work saving, bringing blessing, showing incredible generosity to bring health and life to the nation of Egypt. But listen, there's also something else. There's something else that God is doing here. We'll see this at work in the next few weeks as we go through this because God had promised something else to Abraham as well. He had not only promised Abraham that his offspring would be a blessing to the nations, he had promised Abraham that his offspring would be sojourners in a land that wasn't their own, that they would be sojourners in a land where they would become slaves and oppressed, but that God would bring them out. But in order for God to bring his people out of Egypt, God's got to get them there. And in order to get them there, the only way that they're going to get there is if the only way to find food in the whole planet is to go to Egypt. And the only way that there's going to be food in Egypt is if God exalts Joseph to rule over that. This is why God's, God begins to end Joseph's nightmare here. Why the storyline begins to trend upward. Because God is at work. He's at work not only blessing the nations, but moving his plan of redemption and salvation forward through an innocent sufferer who reveals God to those who otherwise would have no access to them, to him. Does that remind you of someone? I love the subtitle to Sally Lloyd-Jones' book, um, The Jesus Storybook Bible. The subtitle is, Every Story Whispers His Name. Every story whispers his name. Do you hear this story whispering his name? Because you see, brothers and sisters, that this hinge, this turning point in Joseph's life, it's, it's ultimately meant to point us forward. It's ultimately meant to point us to someone greater than Joseph. We're meant to see here the silhouette. We're meant to see the shadow of the truly innocent sufferer whose whole life trended downwards from manger to the cross. We're meant to see the shadow of someone greater, someone whose exaltation would mean blessing and life for those united to him. We're meant to see here the shadow of someone who would come to perfectly interpret God to us and reveal the God that we would otherwise have no access to. John 1 tells us that no one has seen God in other words, we're all cut off. We, all, we can't get in. No one has seen God or can see God. But then he says, but someone, the only God who's at the Father's side, he has revealed him. He has made him known. He has interpreted God to us. We're meant to see here the shadow of someone who would come about to bring blessing to the nations, who would come to bring life and blessing to a hurting, starving, broken world by being broken himself, by taking all of the nightmare of this world into his own heart so that he can end your nightmare and redeem you through it. And brothers and sisters, this morning, 
either for the first time or for the 10,000th time. He's inviting you. He's calling you. He's calling you in whatever kind of nightmare you may be in or afraid of or recovering from. He's drawing you to himself. Come and find life and blessing in him. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, draw us to yourself. By your spirit, we pray that you would give us life and blessing and peace in Jesus Christ, who has made the Father known to us. We thank you for the grace upon grace that is found in Jesus Christ, and we thank you, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.